G'day everyone, welcome back to another episode of Ideas Matter, featuring me, Alex, I've made a return. Welcome back, Alex. Here with Louis and our uh, interview guest, the indomitable Dan Crowley. Indomitable? I didn't realise I was back for a return episode as well, that's, that's a special landmark. Nice to be here. Uh, yeah, Dan's here today to talk about his uh, master's research, uh, which is a continuation of your, of your honours research as yep. well, I believe. Um, Dan's a man of many talents, which will become apparent in this conversation. Scholar of uh, ancient Greece. That's true. Stand-up comedian. That's also true. Uh, political, failed political hack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's sadly also true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, well, I'll, I'll let you put it, in, put it in your own words. You'll do it better justice. How would you describe the, the subject nature of, of, what you're, of what you're doing? Yeah, yeah. So I suppose I'm, I say that I'm interested in, in history, but I suppose... When I say that, it's a bit misleading sometimes because um, I'm not so much interested in what actually happened. I don't really care about kind of minute bits of historical trivia, like what happened on this day and how many soldiers were there at this battle, which some historians, bless them, really, really care about and spend years obsessing over. I suppose I'm more interested in the sort of philosophical side of history and more of the social side of history in terms of what does it mean to us? Like, what does it mean to be a person that's situated in time and what does it mean to tell stories about the past and how does that factor into our identity? Um, and so I suppose as a classicist, I'm kind of looking at that in the ancient context, but it's kind of universal in a way. Like what is, what is history? What does it mean to do history? Philosophical side of history. So you come to the right podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I, I, I personally, I don't know about you guys, but I believe that ideas matter. So it's <laughs> a good, good home for me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess my first question then would be, because this followed on from your honours thesis, Yeah. Uh, but I know even before that you've been interested in, in history for a long time. So I guess, could you give an intellectual history of Dan Crowley <laughs> as, it, as it relates to this topic? Like, how did you yeah. first become interested in it and then how did it evolve? How did it end up where you are now? Yeah, yeah. So I suppose part of what really drew me to, to classics in particular ancient Greek as well in particular, is that it's a, it's a real kind of cross-section of lots of different areas of study. So you don't just have to limit yourself to one particular area. Like if you just study history as a discipline, you do history. If you do philosophy, you do philosophy. But because you're just looking at ancient stuff, there's so much ancient stuff and you can kind of have more of a license to kind of find the little interconnections between things and, and do a bit of kind of cross-discipline stuff. And so that was kind of what really drew me to, to classics in the first place. Um, apart from just the love of the language itself, I really love languages and, and studying that part of it. Um, but yeah, I suppose kind of early on in my degree, I was, um, yeah, really drawn to kind of finding some of those little interconnections and really enjoyed reading Herodotus, the, the Greek historian who we'll talk a bit about today. Um, and I suppose when I read Herodotus in Greek five, a few years ago, I had an amazing professor who was my honor supervisor, um, Ed Jeremiah. And he really encouraged me to write this quite speculative essay. I read it back the other day and some of it is a bit, um, I don't know, I'd write it in different ways, but it was kind of trying to apply modern psychology to Herodotus in a way and kind of looking at um, the area of psychology, which is um, to do with sort of human bias and kind of flaws in human reasoning and looking at some of the simplistic ways that Herodotus analyzes history and kind of almost trying to psycho psychoanalyze that a little bit. Uh, particularly looking at this thing called the hindsight bias, which is like you look back on things that were very unpredictable at the time and then in hindsight they look very easy to predict. Um, so that was kind of, I suppose, the, the basis of it in terms of looking at that sort of subjective side of history. And then I knew I wanted to do my honours on something to do with Herodotus and something in that area. 
um, and kind of had a range of stuff that I wanted to look at and then managed to narrow it down to this thing called the plupast, um, which is basically when an author in a history text depicts history as a discipline. Um, so in the case of Herodotus, it's like, well, he's an historical storyteller, but he also tells stories about other historical storytellers. It's like his characters also tell stories about their past. Um, and so it was, it was kind of looking at like, what's the significance of that? And there was kind of like a very preliminary body of research that had been done on it that hadn't really been done very well. And so I sort of challenged a lot of that. Um, but I suppose, again, it was looking at yeah, like how did he depict this process of historical storytelling and what it meant for people in the past as like a history of history in a way. Um, and then that's led into my master's, which is kind of on a similar area. Yeah. Well, just to orient us a bit, could you tell us, well, you, you mentioned Herodotus is an ancient Greek historian, but yeah. could you give us a bit of detail about what his approach was and why he's yeah. of, uh, such an um, important subject of inquiry? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So we call Herodotus the, the father of, of history, which is misleading in a way because he's obviously not the first person to be curious about what happened in the past. Like that's just a universal human thing. As long as humans have, have been around, we've kind of been interested in what happened before us. Um, when we say that he's the father of history, he's the father of history in the sense of history as like a written discipline. He's the father of literary history. He's the first person that we know of to write a history book in the way that we would think of it um, in terms of like picking a, just like a finite amount of time and a region and just looking like tracing some sort of narrative about what happened um, and also what didn't happen and kind of ruling out some stories that he doesn't think are true. Um, so Herodotus, we kind of don't know too much about Herodotus, sadly himself. We know that he was from Halicarnassus, which is sort of in modern day Turkey. So he was kind of on like the Eastern fringes of the, the Greek world, um, probably spoke, um, Ionic Greek, which is what he wrote, um, the histories, his major work in, um, and he kind of lived around sort of the, the fifth century BC. We don't quite know when he, when he was born and when he died, but we know that he's writing about these sort of events that happened in sort of the, the late 500s BC into the kind of the first half of the... Uh, the 400s BC, and he's writing about the Persian Wars, uh, which are these wars that Greece, um, particularly Athens and Sparta, fought against the massive Persian Empire. Um, and it was basically the beginning of the end for the Persian Empire. In a way, it started to fall apart and Greece started to become the, the major power, paving the way for the sort of Peloponnesian Wars between Athens and Sparta, who were battling for control of Greece, and then later into, you know, Alexander conquering the, the Eastern world. Um, in terms of his approach, he's... Um, I think he gets an unfair rap sometimes. He's kind of not treated seriously a lot of the time, at least for a lot of sort of the history of classical scholarship. He's not treated very seriously because he loves his story. Like he just loves to include random bits of facts that he hears. He's not particularly rigorous in terms of like sticking to a theme. Like at the end of book one, he mentions Egypt and then he gets kind of so sidetracked by Egypt and how cool it is that he writes a whole book just about Egypt that has nothing really to do with the Persian Wars. And he's kind of doing that all the time. He's including little bits about like oracles and, um, you know, some stories about like gods, like meeting random Greek messengers and sending them messages and, and stuff like that. So there's a real kind of supernatural element to it. Um, and yeah, he's, he's, I suppose looked down upon by the people who, who followed Thucydides, um, has a massive crack at him in the first 20 chapters of his work where he's kind of setting out, Thucydides is setting out his sort of method, methodology um, and he just has a go at Herodotus. Plutarch, who was a kind of later historian, an essay writer, wrote this whole essay um, called De Herodoti Malignitate and the Maliciousness of Herodotus and basically just accused him of making stuff up. Um, and that kind of, yeah, continued right on to, you know, even Cicero had some, some bad things to say about Herodotus. 
Um, so he's kind of seen as, yeah, I suppose he's not quite all the way there in terms of um, moving from like myth and epic and that kind of version of history. He's not quite there in terms of transitioning into like an academic historian. That's what people kind of see him as. But I suppose what will hopefully emerge in the conversation today is that's not quite true. Um, he is a storyteller, but I suppose as we'll say, all history is storytelling and really what Herodotus does, Thucydides does, and, and every historian does. Um, but I suppose we'll, we'll get back into that sort of postmodernist argument later. Well, that's a, a nice segue to the stuff that you covered in your literature review, um, which we read in, in preparation for this. So, yeah, I guess the, the critique of Herodotus by other historians that you've spoken about is that he doesn't this self-depiction as historians of as chroniclers of what actually happened uh, just people yep. talking about empirical facts in a sort of very neutral quote-unquote objective way uh, Herodotus doesn't doesn't do that but then you say in this literature review that that view of history uh, came under challenge in the 20th century mm -hmm. uh, by postmodern I don't know whether you call them theorists of history or philosophers of history yeah um, before we get into that in substance, which will be hugely interesting, I feel like the term postmodernism is one that gets bandied about quite a lot, yeah. um, often by people who don't quite know what it means. <laughs> um, so before we get into that, could you perhaps, like what is postmodernism on your, on your understanding and how is it applied to history? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's, yeah, I'm probably guilty of being one of those people who throws it out without knowing exactly what it is. Um, and yeah, in, in this topic, it's also hard to separate postmodernists from post-structuralists. Um, they're kind of one and the same in a way, but it's, it's basically as the word kind of literally means the people who came after modernism, modernism being this thing that I suppose you can trace back to the start of the enlightenment. Um, a lot of classical ideas that kind of brought back, um, as well though, but this kind of emphasis on human reason can do everything we can systematize everything if we think carefully enough about things um and you can basically like work out the order of things in the world in any field um if you study it hard enough that's kind of modernism in a way and there's you know modernist art and trying to really systematize art and modernist history in terms of trying to do a really really scientific version of, of history um and postmodernism is the resistance to that and it's trying to i suppose go back to first principles and really dispute how well you can ever do that um, and dispute the idea that like an order of words can ever really approximate an order of things in terms of the world um, and that's the post-structuralist you know like attacking language and the foundations of language uh, but I suppose it is it's a resistance to this to this idea that like yeah the human mind is capable of understanding everything um, and postmodernists would emphasize more yeah subjectivity and poeticism and just the general limits of human reason yeah I, sp I suppose there, there are two parts to that then there's like the critique of postmodernism that these historians who think they're being hyper rational and systematizing history in this way that might somehow be value neutral they're deluded about mm -hmm. the power of their own ability to do that so there's a sort of critique element of postmodernism and maybe i'm wrong but i sort of got the sense from what you'd written that their postmodernists also think that there is a value in explicitly rejecting that approach mm. and adopting more of a narrative style of writing history. Totally. It's kind of like an emancipatory um, sort of streak in postmodernism, which is like um, once you kind of rid yourself of the shackles of thinking that you have to 
rigidly just like pour through archive and source material and you can't say anything unless you've got like a million footnotes that are each 10,000 words long justifying that claim. Um, once you realize that that's all kind of rubbish and the foundations of that aren't as sound as you think they are, you're then free to be um, a storyteller and to be a poet and to actually really lean into and embrace that kind of side, that social side, um, the experiment, so experiential sort of side of, of history. Um, and so, yeah, there is that kind of liberato liberatory sort of element of, of postmodernism. Um, don't, don't do the kind of fuddy-duddy, 1,000-word-long, you know, history. Or you think of, like, Gibbon's history of the, you know, the fall of the Roman Empire, like 20 books or whatever it is. Um, something that, that nobody, no, like, casual reader is ever going to read. Um, and it is saying, yeah, history should be, it should be fun and it should be engaging and it should be moving. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. Right. So we, we've been touching on the um, idea of uh, history as kind of unvarnished truth telling and kind of talking about the postmodern deconstruction of that. But let's just go back to that idea, like that classical conception of history. Yeah. Could you take us through like the that kind of old school traditional view of what history is and what it should be. Yeah, totally, totally. So, I mean, like it kind of does start with Herodotus. Um, so Herodotus, uh, unfortunately, he doesn't tell us much about his methodology or what he thinks about this discipline of history. He kind of just starts doing it. But he has this like very short introduction um, where he firstly introduces the word history for the first time um, in this context, which is very important. Um, it's the third word of um, his work. The first two are his name and the place where he comes from and then the word history. Um, and he basically says this is the exhibition of the history of, of Herodotus. Um, and the, the word history comes from um, the Greek verb historuo, um, which is the idea of to inquire about something or to investigate something. Um, and so I suppose it sets up this idea of, yeah, history being this idea of going out and, as you say, looking for the facts, um, going out into the world, hearing what people have to say, looking at different bits of evidence, going through sources and trying to work out what the, the truth is. Uh, and that's where we get the word history, this idea of an, an investigation. Um, and then the second important kind of word or phrase that he uses is this phrase that, that Aristotle comes back to later, which is targonomena, which is the things that happened. And you might even add the word actually there, the things that actually happened. Uh, and that's what he says the aim of his history is. It's to make sure that the things that actually happened don't get forgotten um, by the course of time. Um, so and that, again, kind of sets up one of the kind of traditional sort of purposes of history, this idea of making sure that the things, the events that actually happened don't get lost or forgotten. Um, and so those are, those are the kind of the, the important stuff that Herodotus introduces. And then Thucydides really formalizes it um, in, in a much more detailed way. Um, and just, this is just a quote from um, the beginning of Thucydides' work when he's kind of laying out his, his methodology. And he says here, um, from the evidence that I've laid out, one can safely assume that events happen just as I have described them. One should also disregard what the poets have sung about these events because they embellished them excessively. Likewise, one should disregard the accounts constructed by chroniclers who are more interested in pleasing their listeners than telling the truth. Their stories are unverifiable and due to all of the time that has elapsed, they are untrustworthy like mythology. Um, so that's a pretty good, I think, explanation of what Thucydides sees history as. Um, it's not embellished. It's not exaggerated. It's just the truth. It's, you know, the classic facts don't care about your feelings sort of thing from Thucydides here. Um, and Thucydides probably is a Jordan Peterson type um, in that I don't really like him. Um, <laughs> 
But um, yeah, that's that. That is kind of, I suppose, the the conception of history, and that's the modernist conception of history, basically articulated by Thucydides in the year like four hundred BC. Um, this idea, of, as you say, is history is, is truth telling, um, history is is fact finding, and this important idea that um, an historian finds his story in a way that a poet or a novelist doesn't. So a novelist gets to invent whatever they want, a poet gets to do that. But an historian can't do that. They have to find their story. They have to go out, as we said with the word history, go and investigate and inquire. And then they, they find, they uncover their stories in a way that like, you know, the stories already exist out there in the world. These stories have happened and the historian just goes and he finds what that is. And then he just very faithfully and in an unvarnished way lays it out for you. Um, so that's, that's the basic idea. And then um, uh, Aristotle um, kind of formalizes it even further. Um, Aristotle writes this really famous work called um, The Poetics, um, very influential work of sort of literary theory. Um, if you ever study Shakespeare, it's where a lot of modern kind of criticism of Shakespeare comes from, the idea of like tragedy and, and comedy and the idea of like heroes having a fatal flaw. This all goes back to this work that Aristotle wrote. And he also wrote in this question of, of what separates poetry and, and other genres of fiction from history. There's this very simple line that's very succinct um, and pithy where he says, history considers, again, he uses this word, targonomena that Herodotus used. History considers targonomena, the things that happened, whereas poetry considers, and the phrase he uses is hoya anganoito, which is basically like a potential version of that, the kinds of things that could happen or might happen. So that's the distinction. Poets get to speculate on what things could possibly happen in the human condition, whereas the historian has to just say the things that have actually happened to real humans. Um, and Cicero even goes further and he says that history aims entirely at truth, whereas poetry aims mostly at delight. So again, the historian is trying to inform you about what actually happened, whereas the poet is trying to move you in a way. He's trying to appeal to you know, your pathos or he's trying to inspire you or, or whatever a novelist or a poet might try and do, whereas the historian doesn't get to do that. They don't get that license. They've just got to tell you what happened. Um, so that's this kind of, I suppose, idea emerging. And it comes a lot, uh, it's voiced a lot in a criticism of Herodotus, who they think, people like Aristotle and people like Cicero and Thucydides, they think that Herodotus didn't do a very good job with that. He was a bit too much of the storyteller. He wanted to just tell an interesting story. He wanted to just engage his audience um, at the expense of historical accuracy. Um, and I suppose that... One of the most famous sort of articulations of, of that is um, when, uh, I'm just trying to get his name, sorry. Um, one second, Abbott, that's right. This scholar called Abbott in the 20s says that Herodotus has been called the father of history. In truth, he is only the father of storytelling. Um, everybody knows his childlike weakness for portents and prodigies, dreams, miracles, and oracles. Uh, he has a love of exaggeration, careless inaccuracy, and an addiction to entertaining anecdote. Um, and so that's that's the basic idea. An historian shouldn't do that. An historian shouldn't just exaggerate for the sake of telling a, a cool, fun story. Um, they've got to be very disciplined in a way. Right. So that's that's a good outline. Um, so like the, the kind of cla classical conception, or classical and classic, as in traditional conception of history is, you know, you're just figuring things out. We're just finding out what's really going on. We're not, uh, we're not concerned with um, anything sort of like fictive or yeah. anything made up. Uh, but uh, as you were talking about, um, you're, you're interested in the responses to that and the uh, kind of 
people opposing that conception of history. So how does how does that come about and what does that critique look like? Yeah, so I suppose the first way that you can you can start to unpick this a little bit is um, looking at the way in which this conception of history is actually itself an historically contingent idea. And actually not inevitable in any way, but um, an invention in a way. And I suppose what I mean by that is um, this period of Greece that we're looking at um, around the sort of 5th century BC is really a kind of transition period in Greece from a society that is almost entirely based on just oral communication to the kind of society that we live in now where everything is is written down. Most forms of knowledge are written down. Um, obviously not entirely, but most things are, are written down. And I suppose the, the point to make is that in such a society where things can't be written down, where there's just no literacy or even just no written language, no alphabet, um, it's very hard to have this idea of like there being one historical truth because how do you how do you possibly know? Um, and I suppose the example is um, we're very very literal these days. And you know if I were to um, uh, try to relate some speech that Martin Luther King gave 50 years ago, and I were just to kind of paraphrase it and just kind of I don't know give my version of it of what I think he said that kind of captured who he was and what I know about him and what he might have thought at the time and kind of some of the spirit and the the feeling of it. If I just paraphrased that and tried to publish it and pass it off as his words, I'd be like, oh, I mean, I'd be cancelled probably. Um, it would just be kind of outrageous and um, almost like in a way offensive. Um, but in an oral society where somebody says something and it's not written down and there's no record of it that's kind of all you can you can do. If you're kind of trying to write about it 10 years down the track, 50 years, 100 years down the track, you don't have a written record that you can go back and just write something down or just copy it down, transcribe it. You've got to kind of invent in a way. Um, and so this means that, you know, this idea that Thucydides talks about of, of there being, you know, like you can, you can safely assume that like events happen just as I say they did. Um, they just, just can't exist in a society where there's no writing, where there's nothing really to refer back to. Um, and so history in this kind of society is very lyrical, it's very fluid, um, and it's a lot based on kind of storytelling. And like each time you tell an historical story, you tell it in a, in a slightly different way. Um, whereas that changes, that kind of shifts when writing comes along and writing kind of lends itself to just having one set of facts because um, you choose one combination of words and you put it in print and it's just there forever. It's just like it's a time capsule. It's just it is as it is. Um, Socrates actually talks about this and Socrates kind of explains why he doesn't like to write anything down because he can't rephrase himself when he does that. He can't, if he says something in, in the wrong way or doesn't quite uh, nail a tone in terms of who his audience is, he can't write it down again. Um, so history, I suppose, this, this view of history that, that we have comes along with, with writing and wanting to find the one set of words that, that perfectly sums it up. And there's also this element of like in an oral society, um, the only way that you can preserve information and knowledge is by like, I tell you something and I hope that you remember it. Um, that's the only way. Like I can't, I mean, I could draw a picture of it, but in terms of like complex ideas, I tell you something, I hope that you'll remember it and you'll tell someone else and they'll remember it and so on. It's like knowledge is just preserved through your memory. Um, and there's like a, an interesting thought experiment you can do to kind of work out just how radical a difference that is. Um, like imagine you guys woke up tomorrow and you're in some kind of like black void and God spoke to you and said, um, Louis and Alex, um, something really embarrassing has happened. All of like human civilization has been wiped out. 
um, and kind of like Noah's Ark style, I've had to just pick two people who know the most about every subject and hope that they can remember everything that, that, that there was and what happened so that I can recreate it. And I've chosen you two because you guys know the most about philosophy. Right? Um, and you believe that ideas matter and, and God also <laughs> believes that. Um, oh, and, and what God basically asks you to do is basically reconstruct all of Western philosophy you can't check books. You can't Google anything. You just have to reconstruct it just by telling him things. Yeah, we could do it. Yeah, you, you could do it. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. Just, just send him the, the link to your Spotify um, and um, that might help. Um, but, you know, like I'm sure you could give a bare bones kind of like overview of like the important developments, but in terms of like the complexity of ideas of every thinker and who they were, um, and even just like you probably wouldn't be able to remember word for word a single um, like philosophical book that was written. There's an element of complexity there where um, a, an element of sophistication and detail that writing allows that the human memory just doesn't. Um, and the same would be for me and, and Greek stuff and an electrician who knows stuff about um, wiring and stuff like that and an engineer and whatever. Um, kind of our societies have become, our civilizations have become so complex and so sophisticated because we can write things down. More recently, since we can digitize things and that's just expanded, you don't need a physical copy of a book, you can just upload it. And, and download it from, from anywhere. Um, but again, that, that kind of means that history is very different in a pre-literate society. Like Thucydides is like enormous book that is like really long and just ponderous. And Louis, you love talking about clear writing. Thucydides is just the worst example of that. It's just terrible Greek, honestly, it is. Um, and you read it and, and some parts are just like, just borderline, just, um, just it's embarrassing. Um, but, um, that, I mean, like in, in a, without writing, if Thucydides were just trying to, would just like trying to tell you everything that was in his book, you'd just forget it. Like you'd just tune out, it would be boring. All of that complexity and all of that detail that he includes would just, just die out. Um, and again, that, 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 that's only allowed to, to be preserved through writing because you write it down and it's there and it exists forever. Um, so again, this, this idea of like history as being like the one true version of events is not inevitable. It's not some just like fundamental idea. It's something that is technologically based. Um, it only comes about through writing, um, through this tool that we have, which is like the written word. Um, and so it's, again, it's not as inevitable as we think it would be. And again, if you were to, I don't know, if you were to do some like massive timeline of like human civilization um, and the time that we've been orally based and the time that we've been just like uh, based on writing, um, like it would just be like a tiny little fraction at the end where we've just been based on writing. Like we're like a little blip in the overall history of, of mankind for like, you know, hundreds and thousands of years, we haven't had written language and societies have functioned without it. And so to think that it's just inevitable or that this is the one version of history that is meaningful or um, worthy or valid is quite bizarre in a way, because we're the weirdos, like we are just freaks in the way that we do things um, compared to any other civilization. So, yeah. You mentioned in your review that the postmodernists criticise modernist historians for thinking that they're presenting this unvarnished account of what actually happened. Mm -hmm. When in reality, most historians, or at least the good ones who write things that are enjoyable to read, are engaging in a certain form of narrative. Yeah. They're telling a story. Um, and I thought it was quite interesting, like your own response sort of illustrated this is because you, you gave technology as being an the reason why this thing happened in history. Um, so my question is, to, to what extent do, do narrative tellings of history differ from simply just having a theoretical interpretation? 
because a Marxist account of history will focus on certain facts, not necessarily to tell a story, although it will read as such. I mean, the history of all hitherto existing societies is that is that of class struggle. I mean, it's, in a certain sense, that's uh, present that can be, be constructed as a narrative, can be mm-hmm. told as a story, but it's constructed in that way for very rigorous theoretical reasons. Like Marxists think the best way to understand history is to look at these particular facts, these particular social relations, the importance of technology and materialism. So how, if at all, Mm -hmm. does a narrative way of telling history just differ from a theoretical interpretation of history? Yeah, yeah. So it's a a really, really good question. Um, I suppose the question that is underpinning that is what is narrative? Um, and it's something that a lot of people don't define. It's kind of like postmodernism. You just throw it out there. Um, but what actually is narrative and like, what is a story? Um, and the best explanation I've come across is, um, it's something that possesses four dimensions. Um, so there's the spatial dimension, like a story has to have like a setting. Um, it's got to have a time. So that's the temporal dimension. It's got to have sort of characters who kind of make decisions. Um, so it's got that mental dimension. Um, they don't have to be humans, but they have to have some kind of personification. Uh, and then there's this important element, which is like the theoretical dimension, or it's it's called the formal and pragmatic dimension. But it's like, what order do things follow? Like, what's the meaning to things? What's kind of the unifying driving force? Um, and so, yeah, what, what you're talking about in terms of theoretical approaches to history, it is, that's just, it's just one type of narrative. It's a type of narrative in particular where that formal and pragmatic dimension kind of subsumes the rest of it. Um, and it's saying, well, actually, the decisions of characters weren't really that important. Um, the time, you can, it, this is actually an atemporal story that we're telling about history, right? Like history is just like inexorably heading towards this conclusion in terms of Marxism and the phases of, of history. And again, the location doesn't matter because this is a universal story that, that can, again, take place in any society. Um, and so like, yeah, that, that kind of theoretical story is one where that fourth dimension takes on a real significance. Um, but there are other stories where um, the the mental dimension is really important. We might tell um, a history of the Second World War where we focus on the actions of particularly notable leaders like, you know, um, Adolf Hitler and Stalin and, you know, any other um, leader you like. And, you know, we, we might say that, like, a particular event hinged on one, like, brave decision they made when, like, in actual fact, we know that, like, you know, like a range of other, like... Um, forces were at play and you can get into like the guns, germs and steel stuff or the butterfly effect stuff and, and talk about how there's all sorts of other um, counterfactuals and stuff like that. But that might be one particular story where we emphasize that one. Um, and then we might tell a story that really emphasizes the idea of, of time um, and like, you know, um, the sense of like um, time passing and what that was like for, for people to, to live through. Um, and like the, a good example would be like, um, histories of whole civilizations where we're not so much interested in like one particular event and what caused it but looking at like how the civilization has changed over time and like how an empire like the Roman Empire for example moved between different phases of governance or whatever and then again we might just tell like a history of a particular region where we're really interested in like what happened in this particular place over different periods and like how has it changed so I think what you're describing is like a is is a type of historical narrative, definitely, but it's just one sort of particular kind where again that idea of like the logical order just starts to subsume everything else. Um, but the postmodernist um, innovation, I think, is to say that well, what the modernists would say is that they sit outside of narrative in a way. Um, they're not making these narrative decisions. They're just like telling stories as they were. 
um, again, they're finding these stories, they're uncovering these stories, and a postmodernist would laugh at that um, because stories don't exist outside of us and our minds. Like, we create stories. There's no such thing as a story that just exists in nature. Like, we have to go and look at nature and create a story that makes sense to us. We construct that. So all of history, again, is just a construction of, of narrative. Right? Things just happen. They don't happen in the form of a story with a beginning, a middle, an end, and a plot, and character development, and a message, and all of those things. That's not how reality happens. Reality, things just happen. People experience things, and then we look back on them, and we look back at the debris of the past, the things that were kind of left behind, and the little fragments that we have, and we create a story about it. Um, and you can create stories in all sorts of different ways, but this idea that you can somehow sit above that, um, be sort of um, above the fray in a way, is just like, again, it's laughable. Like you can't, because like stories are things that we make. Um, everyone's gonna be doing that. No matter how many footnotes you have in your, in your work, no matter how many volumes you write, you're still gonna have to make those narrative choices. You're still gonna have to think about where does this story happen? When does it happen? Who does it affect? Um, and what is the driving force? Um, or maybe you can sit outside of that, but it's gonna be a very different kind of history than we're used to. It's going to be just like a bare bones, just like describing literally every single thing that ever happened from every single vantage point. Um, and it's going to be totally nonsensical and totally useless. And it's going to be millions and millions and millions of books long. Um, and so, yeah, if we want to write history that has any kind of significance for us, then we kind of have to stop just turning up our nose at narrative and saying that um, that's something that the bad historians like Herodotus do, where the good historians, we don't do that. We're like Thucydides. Um, again, that's just totally not true. Yeah. So what you're saying is Herodotus was right all along. Herodotus was right all along. I'm a Herodotus truther through and through. <laughs> Call me like the Alex Jones of the classical world. <laughs> I'll, I'll die on that hill. Uh, we've been red-pilled here today. <laughs> um, you, you, you mentioned really interesting things about like the contingency of things happening. Um, because most of my like, academic training, I suppose, is in international relations. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the starting question for international relations is, why does war happen? Mm -hmm. And then you'd be more specific, well, why did World War II happen? Um, the trouble with that is that we can't rewind history or we can't run a control study mm. to make more wars happen, to study their causes, right? So the method of IR is like hotly contested. And one of the methods is historical counterfactuals. Mm -hmm. You go, well, okay, in the lead up to the outbreak of World War One, what if, you know, X wasn't the case? And my superficial reading of it is that some historians are okay with that sort of asking counterfactual questions about history, whereas other historians think that's just nonsensical. Mm -hmm. You go, well, what do you mean things could have been another way? Things just... It seems it's like some historians are almost implicitly determinist. Mm -hmm. Everything was happening. It could have not happened any other way. It was always going to happen that way. So to ask a counterfactual question about history mm -hmm. is, is nonsensical. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, what's, what's your thought on, yeah. on that approach to asking questions of history? Well, I think um, the postmodernists would say there's no such thing as an historical factual to, to begin with. Um, the idea of a counterfactual is you're saying that things were different than they were, and the the postmodernists would say, well, how do you how are you defining what things were? How do you know? Like, how do you have this kind of again this this story of like what happened? Um, 
And how do you how do you how do you say that it's true and that another version isn't true? Again, these things are subjective human creations. What does that mean to say one story is true? You can say one story is more plausible, or again, it's more moving. It kind of seems to have the ring of truth, but you can't say that it's true um, because again, we like we just created these things. Like, what are you comparing these against? And so the, I think the postmodernists would say, go, go right ahead, go and do the historical counterfactual. What you're doing there is is no more slippery than what an historian does, right? It's all just narrative. It's all just subjectivity. It's all just storytelling and, and creativity and invention. So go right ahead. Um, but yeah, I suppose you, you have to then be able to justify your project in some kind of aesthetic way or some kind of poetic way or some kind of like functional way and, and talk about why what you're doing is actually useful for people and why it's enlightening and illuminating. But this idea that with history, we're ever going to be able to tell a story that is true is something that we have to do away. I'm not saying that I agree with this, but this is the, this is the kind of the postmodernist idea. Um, and then, I mean, like, and the, the basic thing is that like, you know, bits of historical um, artifacts can be like true or not. Like we can like say, well, look, there's a ruin there. Like we, we can see the foundations of that. But in terms of like, coming up with any kind of story that has those dimensions and, and has something that will make sense to us in terms of like what, where, when, why, uh, and who did it affect. All of those stories are just going to be inventions. And so go ahead. Again, that's the kind of the, the liberatory element of postmodernism. Go right ahead and do that. But don't delude yourself into thinking that what you're doing is science. You're doing the same thing that a storyteller is doing, the same thing that a novelist is doing with different constraints um, and different sort of sensibilities that your audience is going to have because, again, you can't just make up historical evidence that just seems ludicrous and you can't just, like, say aliens, like, you know, descended to Earth last week if people were here and they know that they didn't and nobody in their family told them that 100 years ago aliens came or whatever. So you can't just totally make up stuff like that. But in the end, what you're doing is still a kind of aesthetic literary project in the same way that a, that a novel is. Um, again, yeah, again, with different critical constraints, but it's the same thing. Um, so that would be, I suppose, the extreme postmodernist response to you, which is like, yeah, it's all fair game. Go ahead. So where then do you stand uh, in relation to the idea of historical truth? So you just indicated the postmodernist position or the extreme one. Mm -hmm. that it's kind of nonsensical to talk about there being such thing as a historical truth, but what do you reckon on that? I feel like... The average person listening to this is going to have an instinctual kind of, you know, negative reaction to that idea that, well, yeah, sure, I've, you know, th there's always subjectivity tied in with how we view the past, but surely there's some sense that we can sort of like figure out something of what actually happens. Yeah. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. Um, there's lots of different ways you can you can go with it. Um, so one way to, to do it is, I suppose, to just kind of retreat to what we do know is like true and so like and just being very cautious in the way that you talk about history so that's that's one way you can kind of navigate it so i'm actually not going to make any claims about like what anything meant um, i'm not going to make any claims about why but i'm just going to tell you like the base historical facts that are indisputable in terms of like um yeah this is the stuff that you can see with your own eyes you can go out and see the the debris and this is often called like pointillist history you think of like pointillist paintings like the little dots that aren't connected um, it's kind of like that in a way. It's like you're just like just describing what the bits of historical debris are and people can kind of see their own pattern in it as they want to, but you're not actually 
kind of connecting the dots for them in a way. Little bits of unconnected historical trivia. I, I, f- I find that quite quite boring and um, I think, yeah, I, I, you're right, like a lot of historians just kind of ignore this stuff and there's um, there's quite a funny funny element in which like postmodernism almost never really happened in a way because historians have just kind of kept going on as if this just never happened. And they keep writing their history books in exactly the same way I keep just going to conferences and talking about things in exactly the same way as if none of this ever happened. It's kind of like an interesting thought experiment, but at the end of the day, useless. Um, and there's this this great quote. Um, I can't exactly remember who said it, um, but this idea that like postmodernism um, baits us with this like the siren call of liberation and creativity, but it might actually be a call to intellectual suicide. You know, like the suic- like the, the sirens inviting sailors in to die. Um, and there is an element to, yeah, like if you, if you fully buy into this postmodernism, you end up just completely throwing academic rigor out the door, which I don't think we want to do. I think there is a middle ground and there's, there's um, a body of scholarship that, that tries to work out what that middle ground might be. There's a great article by Nancy Partner um, and a few other scholars um, who kind of work out what this uh, might be. Elizabeth Fox Genovese is, is another great one. But I suppose what it would be is, is saying um, kind of what I said before, which is... Um, you can't just totally fabricate stuff that people just instinctively know isn't true. Um, if it just doesn't pass the sniff test in a way, people aren't going to buy it. So you do have to take your source material seriously and you have to make some effort to um, create a story that fits the, the, the parts that like people can see with their own eyes and point to evidence that people will kind of rationally be able to make sense of. Um, but at the same time, I don't think you should... Um, I don't think you should become consumed by this fantasy that you can create the one true version of events um, and that you can spell out in perfect detail exactly what happened and that that will be indisputable in a way. Like you're pursuing a goal that just doesn't exist because, again, like at, as soon as you stray into the territory of, of even just looking at like time and just trying to describe how time passes, but even the thornier stuff in terms of, again, what does it all signify? What does it all add up to? What does it mean in the end of it all? As soon as you do that, you're straying into storytelling. So I think just just acknowledge that and um, then just ignore postmodernism and I think you can just continue pretending that it doesn't exist as long as you almost have the humility to say, again, you might be able to prove me wrong and you might be able to come up with a better story, um, but I'm at least trying and I'm self-aware in a way um, and I'm not going to be too arrogant. Right? I'm not going to have the total just like... Um, uh, submission to, to postmodernism in terms of just not even trying to, to say something that's that's accurate. Um, but I'm also not going to have the hubris to think that um, what I'm doing is a science. It's not. History is it's an art form. Um, I think that's important to understand. Again, it's not the same. It's not the same kind of art form as like just writing a poem from scratch or writing a novel because, again, there are different, different sort of constraints that you're operating within and people are going to judge it in different terms. Um, but... Yeah, it's not. It's not a science. I think that's that's an important legacy of, of postmodernism, and it allows us to be a bit less fussy, a bit less precious, and just enjoy some of the stories that people like Herodotus have, have told us. They're good stories. They're quite illuminating in that kind of human psychological way. Um, even if you can point to some particular battle and say, "Well, he says there are a hundred thousand soldiers, and in actual fact, there were twelve thousand." The overall message of the story can still be affecting and moving in a way. So if we abandon this idea that we can ever construct or perhaps reveal a single true objective account of of history and in a sense 
different histories are narratives. Is there a place left to stand to adjudicate between different narratives? And mm. I'll, I'll give a concrete example. Um, apologies to our international listeners, um, the Eureka Stockade. Mm-hmm. So just for most of our listeners are actually American. Um, in what was in the 1800s, 1830s was the gold rush? When was it? 1851. 1851. So 1851, like people from all around the world come to Victoria in the same way they went to California to pursue mm-hmm. the gold rush. And basically uh, they had to pay a license fee to dig the gold. Mm-hmm. And this eventually erupted in huge protests. And what's interesting in Australia is that this occurred before Federation, um, but it's taken up by both sides of the political spectrum. So the left, sometimes you'll see unionists wearing the Eureka flag, um, which was flown at the Eureka stockade where they like had a shootout with um, the troops. Um, so the left will say, well, this is like the working man versus the aristocracy fighting against harsh working conditions. They're just trying to make ends meet. It's the birthplace of unionism in a certain sense. Whereas the political right will say, no, 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 this was about unfair taxation. Mm. Uh, it, it was a protest in favour of limited government. So you have these two competing narratives over how to interpret this really important event in history. Mm-hmm. Um, now, provided that both sides don't just fabricate facts, they're both talking about what actually happened. Do you think there's any way to say one of these interpretations or one of these narratives of the Eureka Stockade is better, air quotes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, again, a postmodernist would say no, because they would say there's no such thing as objective truth and there's no such thing as a partial truth in a way. Like if there's no full truth, how can you say something is partially true or more true than something else? What I would say is like, think about it in the same terms as you might judge a novel, right? And you can read a novel and a character might react in a certain situation in a way that you just don't find relatable or plausible. You just think like, yeah, I just don't. I just don't think a person in that situation would choose to do that. I just don't quite get that. Um, it's a like I, I love Sally Rooney's work, but it's a it's a prominent criticism sometimes of Sally Rooney's characters. You know, like they just don't quite act in a way that I think a normal person would in that situation. And it's not that her story is untrue in an like objective scientific way, because I'm sure a human could like act in that way. It's possible, but there's something just kind of uncanny uncanny about it, and something that just doesn't quite strike us as as being realistic or, tr- or kind of poetically true. I think it's almost the same when it comes to history. Like an explanation of history can just like try and explain the facts that we can ascertain and the things that we can see with our own eyes. Um, but it might just not quite do a good job. I think, again, go away from saying that it's definitely not true or it's provably false in a way. Um, again, and, and, and judge in the same way that you would a novel. It just doesn't quite do a good enough job of... of um, of speaking to, to me in terms of like being a, a cogent, um, reassuring explanation or, or whatever. Um, but again, this idea that you're going to be able to say that it's provably like factually untrue is just kind of not, not possible. Um, I mean, like it can, I mean, again, it can be, if people are fabricating stuff then you can just say, well, like it's just like a complete invention. Um, but it, again, this is, these are, these are subjective questions, the questions of degree, the questions of aesthetics in a way. Um, so start judging history in the same way that you would judge a novel, I would say. Yeah. I didn't know that was a common criticism of Sally Rooney. Yeah. But yeah. now that you say it, I'm like, yeah, that's very true. I read yeah. Normal People. Yeah. And it was just kind of like, the, the way that her characters felt was like, I mean, Rooney's a Marxist. And so she's constructing these characters who react to a way, react to the world in a way that's like, 
making a Marxist point. Mm-hmm. So there's this whole. So what's the male character's name? In, uh, Connell. In, Con, yeah, Connell. Where he's, he's like, she describes him being. She doesn't use the word alienated, but she's describing like Marxist alienation and his response to this certain situation. And yeah, I, because it's so consciously trying to make that point, the way that she describes his behaviour, yeah, is just not plausible. It seems uncanny. They're um, not very normal people. Yeah, ironically titled. Um, and it's, yeah, and, and similarly, like I just had a class this morning. I had an interpretation of Hobbes, and just pulling out quotes of Hobbes and saying, like, actually, Hobbes wasn't concerned with power. He was a Peronian skeptic, and he was concerned yeah. with epistemic relativism. And I was like, <laughs> okay, well, this this quote from Hobbes isn't wrong, but this is such a stretch that it's just not yeah. plausible. Yeah. So, are, are you saying that that's yeah? It's it's like that. It's like often I think of. Um, like political theories in a way that like try and formalize and explain everything. This is kind of kind of what you're saying. Um, and you might think about like libertarian philosophy, where it's trying to say that like you know the only the only crime is property crime, and like that's the only rule that you can't violate someone's property. And then they'll stretch themselves to say that any time a human is upset about something, it's something to do with property. When obviously that's kind of not true because you have all sorts of like emotional needs that go beyond things that we own. Um, and it's like it's not it's not like what they're saying is again like provably false in a way, it, but it's like you're trying to get as much leverage out of a particular idea or a particular theory as you can, and then sometimes it just starts to stretch, and sometimes you need a whole new kind of way of interpreting things, and that might be a Marxist way of interpreting things or whatever it is, um, a Catholic distributivist or, or or whatever floats your boat. Um, and it's the same with with history. Like a particular historical work will have a particular set of answers to those like dimensional questions in terms of when it happened, where it happened, who it happened, why it happened, and you'll get a certain amount of mileage out of it. But at a certain point, maybe it just won't. It, it'll, it'll get that kind of uncanny element that a Sally Rooney. Again, I don't think Sally Rooney's novels do. I love love her writing. I'm a huge fan. But that some people think that it does. It has that uncanny quality, maybe. Um, and again, what we're talking about is interpretation. Um, we're not talking about science and maths or something like that. We're talking about interpretation. Again, history is an art form. I think we've lost that. I think the discipline has, has really lost that. Um, Sartre, this was a big theme of, of Sartre's work. And like a lot of the villains in his characters were like boring, fuddy-duddy historians. So like the more they study history, they just can't be bothered doing anything in the present because everything good has ever happened. And, you know, they're just so caught up in the past and... Um, there's a really interesting article about that, about like sort of the existentialists and what they had to say about history and just how philosophically dead it was and how it just left, left you depressed. Um, cause yeah, everything had already been done or the past was bleak and there was no possibility of doing something new and different. Um, and I think, yeah, history has lost that idea, but it's an art form. It's become so consumed in just facts and just like the most boring, minute debates about like, does this source say this, does it not, um, whatever, um, and just like, again, pouring through footnotes and just spending hours and hours in archives. Um, and it's like, yeah, again, that's important to a certain extent because, again, your story has to ring true and it has to be plausible and has to connect in some way to reality. Um, but history is an art form. Like historical stories, when they're at their best, should be um, moving in the same way that a, a novel should be. Um, and that's what's been lost in the discipline. Um, that's what Herodotus does so well. That's why I love his work compared to Thucydides because Thucydides is just boring, man. It's just the worst to read. But you read Herodotus and it's like it was written two and a half thousand years ago, but it feels like it could be written today and it feels like the people you're reading about could be right there in front of you. Um, and it rings true in a way that Thucydides stuff just doesn't. Like it just, it actually makes comments about human nature and the human condition that you think like, yeah, man, that's like, that's true. And it, it moves you in a way that 
that history writing today often doesn't. Um, so a bit more creativity, a bit more freedom, if that's the kind of the legacy of postmodernism, just to loosen us up a bit, um, then great, I say, yeah. Right, so you've given a huge plug for Herodotus. So if anybody's listening to this pod and likes the sound of that, please go have a read of Herodotus. Absolutely. Um, is there anyone else, uh, history-wise, that you feel is, is in a similar vein of doing this like fun, novelistic, creative, engaging history style? Yeah, um, there's there's lots. I mean, there's lots of, of narrative um, history out there today. I would say like um, creative nonfiction and like memoirs these days are, are doing like a really good job of it. Um, and you know, I mean, like a a real um, cynic would say that memoirs are just like you know, it's all just artificial, and you're all just like looking back retrospectively and making stuff up or whatever. Um, but I think yeah, that that kind of fusion of like um, poetry and and history is really interesting when it's like the writing about self. Um, so yeah, all sorts of great memoirs. None jump straight to my head, but like go to the the cultural studies section at readings and find the memoir little um, shelf stuff like that. Um, China Meville, uh, China Meville, Melville mm. um, wrote yeah. a really great history of the Russian Revolution um, a few years ago. October, that's right. Yeah, um, and it's a real narrative history. It's written like a novel. I think he's like a video game guy or whatever. China yeah, I think mo- mostly he writes fiction, but he's written yeah. a few histories. Yeah, yeah, and they're, and they're fantastic, and they are rigorous in a way. Like they. He doesn't just make stuff up. He does like um, as much as possible adhere to source material. But it's yeah, it's really well written. Um, it's a cool story. Um, and again, yeah, I think that's that's history at its best. Um, yeah, I, I, none none other ones really jump to my head. But I think other cultures do it better than than we do. Like you, you think about like storytelling in um, Aboriginal Australia, and like you know the idea of the dream time and some of those stories that that get told. A lot of the oral histories that exist in Indigenous communities are just fascinating. Um, and again, I think are much more emotionally intelligent than, you know, like Edward Gibbon's history of the, the, the Roman Empire and the decline of the, the Roman Empire, which I'm sure is a great work of scholarship. I've never been bothered to read it because why would you? Um, but um, yeah, it's boring. Man. And yeah, I think other cultures who just kind of aren't trapped in this kind of literary technology that we're so trapped in, um, you talk about kids being glued to their phones and addicted to their phones. I feel like we're addicted to writing in a way. We've lost that art of that people before writing had of like just telling an interesting story that you'll tell someone and they'll want to remember and they'll want to tell their friends and their kids. And um, that's that's the art that we've lost um, in history, at least. Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, I I love reading biographies yeah. because I find them so much more digestible. Yeah, totally. But you still... I mean, the best for me is a biography written by an historian. Yeah. So someone like Judith Brett, yeah, who is an Australian political historian, but recently wrote a biography of um, Alfred Deakin. Yeah. That was like honestly one of the best things I've I've read. Yeah. Because it was such a fantastic blend of like scholarship and narrative. Yeah. So I get I get where you're coming from completely. So um, two more. I mean, Peter Fitzsimmons' books um, are great examples. Again, I don't think I've actually read one, but I think he like he does that quite well. He tells interesting stories. Also, Say Nothing by Patrick Radden Keith, which is a history of um, the the troubles in Northern Ireland, built off oral history from different IRA soldiers, um, is really interesting. Um, but yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on Ideas Matter, Dan. No uh, we'll probably have you back on as you finish your thesis to discuss the final form where you land. So stay tuned. Um, is there anywhere, and if not, you can cut this out, is there anywhere where you'd like to direct our listeners to um, stay tuned? I think by the time this goes out, my comedy show will be finished. Um, nothing to do with the theory of history, um, luckily for my audiences. 
Um, no, I think that'll be finished. But um, you can yeah, you can subscribe to my Substack. I write about some of this stuff and some some other stuff. Hopefully, tell some some engaging stories. Um, it's called Some Writing. If you just look up we'll Dan Crowley, we'll some put a writing. link to to Dan's Substack in the episode description. Sick. Um, no, apart from that, all good. All right, awesome. Thanks for listening, guys, and we'll see you soon. Cool. Peace.